Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So today's class is the Saba Saba Sutta, uh, a sutta on ending fermentations. Um, this fits in with our uh, our structured study of karma, rebirth, and intentional becoming, um, in that it relates directly to what is experienced by the five clinging aggregates. Uh, to this past Tuesday. Uh, David did a masterful job in presenting the Kajaniya Sutta, which describes uh, how we release ourselves from the affliction um, that comes from ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Uh, and, and David, again, he, he did this great job of tying in our afflictions to where they arise from dependent origination. And even specifically within that 12-step that process, rooted in ignorance and ending in suffering, uh, that the uh, individual components of the aggregates arise. So here, um, fermentations are, uh, I guess they should be defined. Fermentation can be broadly defined as uh, the three defilements, as greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. Uh, and those three encompass all of the stress and suffering, or they describe all of the stress and suffering that human beings um, experience. Uh, the formation of fermentations is related directly to the five clinging aggregates. In other words, we self-identify with form. We start taking things personal. And that leads to the way that, um, that our sixth sense base informs our experience. Form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, ongoing consciousness. And so when I'm coming in contact with the world or even my own thoughts about myself, and my mind is rooted in ignorance, I'm coming in contact with my senses, my sixth sense base, and there's a reaction, there's a feeling, and that feeling leads to a thought or a perception, and that perception leads to a, uh, a solidification of the thought around the perception, meaning now a fabrication. We're creating mental constructs about the way we see ourselves in relation to the world, but remember it's rooted in ignorance. So that's the fermentation. If, and you think about the word, if you leave something on a counter that's prone to rotting and you leave it there long enough, eventually it's going to rot. But in that process of rotting, there's usually a period of time where something is useful or practical. But leave it out long enough, leave it unattended, mindless, and it will always turn to rot. And where does, where's the repository for, for rot within ourselves? It's in that fifth component of the clinging aggregates of consciousness. And remember where, where Brahm, uh, Brahm, Ram taught in the very first class in this structured study, uh, I think it was Ram, they taught um, uh, karma is the field, consciousness the seed, craving the moisture. So you can see in that sutta, it's relating directly to what a fermentation or what maintains fermentations in our lives, what maintains the rotten thinking of our own life. It's our ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths that continually provides the seed for our ongoing karma, our ongoing dis discontent in this world. And so again, points to the solution. If the solution is, just to use the, the phrase, rotten thinking, then it's recognizing and abandoning that rotten thinking and purifying our thinking. And how do we do it? This sutta tells us how. The Saba Saba Sutta. The Buddha was at Savatthi in Jita's Grove, Anatha Pandika's monastery. There he presented this teaching. Friends, the ending of the fermentations is for one who knows and understands skillful and unskillful mindfulness. You could also use the words that I use are refined and, or unrefined mindfulness. The ending of the fermentations is not possible for one who does not know or understand skillful and unskillful mindfulness. Excuse me. 
So the Buddha doesn't leave us there. He defines what that is. What is skillful and unskillful mindfulness? When one is inappropriately mindful, fermentations arise and increase. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is, is recollecting uh, or holding in mind something or anything. Uh, and that, that can be... Uh, so mindfulness alone, applying mindfulness to something, is not in and of itself uh, a liberating experience. A, a good ex- example that I use for my own, my own life is uh, one of the most profound experiences of mindfulness I ever had is that of an alcoholic and a drug addict. I could not help but hold in mind where my next drug or drink was coming from. That's mindfulness. I was constantly recollecting and holding, holding in mind what I thought I needed. That's mindfulness. And we can do that with things that are not as obviously disagreeable as addictive substances. We can do it with the next intellectual idea or the next relationship or the next new house or anything that we think we need to add to ourselves to maintain contentment and safety in the world. One, when the Buddha's words, when one is skillful in their application of mindfulness, additional fermentations do not arise and present fermentations are abandoned. So again, the Buddha tells us, how do we do this? What's the, what's the method for recognizing unskillful mindfulness and developing skillful mindfulness? Friends? Pardon me? That's the beginning of it, yes, thank you. Friends, there are seven ways to abandon fermentations. There are fermentations that are to be abandoned by understanding. In one lacking instruction of the Eightfold Path, having no regard for the Dhamma or for those of integrity, meaning when we're talking about integrity with the Dhamma, we're talking about those that have integrated the Eightfold Path. This one cannot discern what is skillful to be mindful of and what is unskillful to hold in mind. So the Buddha, the, our teacher, is saying, without the framework of the Eightfold Path, you will not know what is skillful and what is unskillful. That also tells us what the purpose of the Eightfold Path is. To very clearly understand what it is as a Dhamma practitioner, one who's practicing this discipline, what is it that I am to hold in mind to develop that profound right view? They are lacking the framework, meaning the Eightfold Path, for clear knowing provided by the path. And what are ideas that are unskillful to be mindful of? Whatever ideas that when held in mind develop sensual craving or increase sensual craving. Any idea that that in this moment is an idea that says, I need something more to be successful or even content or satisfied in this world. That's a a thought rooted in sensual craving that I need to add something to me in this moment to be fulfilled in this moment. And of course, when we have a mind like that, that mind is always jumping back from, jumping from the past to the future, rooted in what it didn't get in the past. And if it doesn't get that now, it's not going to be happy in the future. And so we're never living our life in this present moment. Those are all unskillful thoughts. They're rooted in a fermentation. The, firm, the basic fermentation, again, as I said, greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, that, that can be... Um, defined simply as ongoing eye-making. I need me to be more. To unskillful sensual craving, establishment of self-craving develops, continues, and increases. Meaning, unless something is done to to interrupt this juggernaut of eye-making, it simply will increase. And again, this is what the the Buddha... um, Thursday, I'll be teaching them the, the Gara Sutra, and I've taught it many times. This is what he's describing, how we get caught up in that feedback loop of self-referential views through ongoing sensual craving, the ongoing need for more of me. And again, think about that in, a, in just a, uh, in an utterly logical sense. In this moment, how can any of us, in this moment or any other moment, how can any of us be anything more than what we are? That doesn't mean that we can't acquire useful things and in this way acquire the knowledge of the Dhamma. But it's not a way of, of adding to or fixing a broken self 
or the, 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 the most hurtful thought that I need salvation to, to throw my mind into that belief in salvation. That there's something so fundamentally broken in me that this life I, I must discard with the hope of getting some kind of reward past this life. What am I telling myself? I'm telling myself in this moment, disregard this life. It's not even worth focusing on. You're not going to get anything of any value right here and right now. Everything you get is going to be in some disincarnate form. Most of modern Buddhism resolves in that way and most modern religions, even the so-called natural or pagan religions, resolve in something outside of yourself. What the Buddha awakened to was that's all a fermentation. The need that in this moment I must be something different than I am is literally insane, isn't it? Because I can't be anything different than I am, meaning an awakened human being. As an awakened human being, then I can have the entire experience of what it means to be a human being. But I first have to be a human being, don't I, in order to have that experience. When sensual craving increases, ignorance does as well. These are ideas that are to be mindful, mindfully recognized and mindfully abandoned. Sensual craving increases, ignorance does as well. Those are the ideas that are to be mindfully recognized and mindfully abandoned. Mindfully, meaning that there's something that we must do. It's not a, a matter of just being a good person or having a certain set of beliefs, even the belief in salvation or that the Lord God Buddha is going to save me at some point. That's a fermentation, isn't it? It's not rooted in reality. But when I recognize my fermentations and take control of my own mind, then I do this myself. The Buddha continues, And what are ideas to be appropriately mindful of? Any ideas that do not develop sensual craving or increase sensual craving. Appropriate or right mindfulness releases any sensual craving that has developed and no establishment of craving for itself arises and the fermentation of ignorance is abandoned. So everybody knows when their, um, their minds are agitated and you're moving towards um, constantly grasping after more. And aversion is another form of grasping after. It's, it's grasping after something to be different or less than. I don't want this to occur. That's still craving, isn't it? These ideas that are unskillful to hold in mind, and these are the great questions that human beings have always asked and felt like they, they deserved an answer. And these are the ones, and the Buddha talks about this repeatedly, these are the questions that you must recognize and abandon immediately. Did I exist in the past? Did I not exist in the past? Will I exist in the future? Will I not exist in the future? And Nagarjuna made a, made a living off of this, and he's still influencing uh, Zen teachings and even Theravadan teachings to this day from um, 600 BC is when Nagarjuna had his influence. Again, continuing to this day. What am I now? What am I not? Meaning, do I exist? Do I not exist? Where have I come from? Why are these inappropriate questions? Because they're not related to what's occurring right here and right now. We don't have to ask, I don't have to wonder, did I exist in the past? Why not? What relevance does that have in right here and right now? I'm existing now. I can have a memory of the past 66 years of my life, but that's just a memory. My existence is right here and right now. Does everybody understand that? There, there's no Dhamma and there's no human life unless we can find a way to unite our mind and our body. Brett mentioned it earlier. He started the class with jhana meditation and the developed right view through the Eightfold Path. That allows me to unite my mind and my body and see what's occurring in reality. Not based on a fermentation. Not something that will take me out of this human experience. Did I not exist in the past? Why would I even have that thought if I understand that this is where I exist? Where would that thought come from? Will I exist in the future? Everybody's worried about that. What's going to happen to me after this life? Think of, excuse me. Think about the incredible um, uh, and, and fantastically elaborate scenarios we've created based on pure speculation. Maybe they're true. 
but based on pure speculation about what, what happens to human beings after they're dead. Not one person can come back and say, this is what I found. We're just not capable of doing that. We have people that we attribute labels and call them prophets to give the, their imaginings legitimacy. But the Buddha says, don't go there. He didn't say it's not true. He just says it's hurtful. The Buddha never ever denied any existence outside of a human existence. He simply said, this is the one that we need to be present for because this is the only one that human beings can have. And it's true. If there is life for John Haspel, somehow, some way, post this physical death, for one thing, I don't have to worry about it or think about it, do I? Because that's going to occur no matter what. But if I base this life on something that I'm speculating about, because enough people that I respect or associate with believe in it, again, I've lost my mind and I've lost this life. That was the, my problem with originally being brought up Roman Catholic, and I, I respect all religions, I, they're just not for me. But it was also my problem with many years in modern Buddhism because they all presented their dharma as, or their religion as salvation. And even though I was told, even Roman Catholics are, are told that they are born into something called original sin, you're screwed even you know, right from the get-go. I could never understand that. And I can even understand, even as a kid, how could people even accept this? Because I knew, you know, I didn't, I didn't do anything all that terrible at 12 or 13 years old, yet I was told that I had this thing that I had. And, and that idea of original sin permeated every spiritual idea I ever came across in different ways, that there's something wrong that needs to be fixed, and it's the religion itself that can fix it, not me. The radical difference between what the Buddha taught and what every other religion during the Buddha's time and our time is just that. I can fix me if I am to understand me. But there's no fix anywhere else. What about the energy that people put into preventing death? It's such a good point, Dustin. Thank you. Again, people will spend their whole lives and sometimes if they have a great fortunes, in preventing death. We have technologies today that people can freeze their heads and people do it with the belief that at some point, somehow they're going to be able to reanimate the head on something else that's useful and they'll have a life. Even if it's possible, in a technology, I could, I could see it happening someday. I don't want this head on another body. I've had enough now. And the idea, and, and, and Dustin, Dustin's question is even more broad than what I'm attributing it to, the, the cryogenics. It's much more than that. Think about the, 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 the pain and delusion. Uh, i got to be careful when I say this. Now, I, I, what I was going to talk about is people that do, uh, do cosmetic surgery, surgery strictly for van, vanity reasons. There's some reasons to do cosmetic surgery to live in the world necessary but a lot of it is done because we're trying to preserve the youth of this body that can't be done we get old you know we get old and when we start denying I was just talking with someone I think yesterday maybe even in Thursday class Brian would remember um, and Matteo and Tom were there too um no, it was with, with my, my aging cousin last night, a Happy New Year talk about how we're getting old. Um, and, and just, it, it's not fun, it's not pleasant. But it's its own reward, isn't it? I would much rather be, well, that's not true, I was going to say I'd much rather be 25. I wouldn't, because I can't be. I recognize that my physical abilities are not what they were 20 years ago or even two years ago. But this moment in my life has never been more meaningful than right here and right now. It has nothing to do with my physical capabilities or lack thereof. It's because I've united my mind and my body through this technology and it's made this moment meaningful. It doesn't need to be any different. It doesn't need to be embellished by my fermentation. The Buddha continues, holding in mind 
these unskillful ideas, holding in mind these unskillful ideas, six confused and deluded views will arise. The view that I have a self is now established, meaning this is me, a permanent self. The view that I have no self is established. That's most of modern Buddhism, especially the Yogacara or mind-only or Zen schools. That entire um, school of modern Buddhism, I call it Buddhism, I can't Mm -hmm. believe it, Buddhism resolves itself in the idea that the self is nothing or the self is empty. That is a complete contradiction to what the Buddha said. He said that each and every human being is an individual human being. They have a self. Anatta means their views of self do not constitute a self. They're wrong views. The Buddha never ever taught annihilation, although most of modern Buddhism resolves in annihilation. Uh, number three, I have a self because I perceive a self. Much like, um, I always forget how to say the word, Descartes, Descartes. 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 I think, therefore I am. No. If I think this is what I am, I'm deluding myself. That's the ultimate deluded thought. I have a self because I perceive that I am not a self. That's just confused and discursive thinking. But again, I was in, involved in that for much of my modern Buddhist practice, trying to figure out how can I be, how can I aspire to nothingness when I'm having this experience of a confused nothing. It didn't make any sense, but yet because. I was affiliated with people that were practicing that wholeheartedly as I was. I just went along with it. Even though every moment of that practice I knew it was nonsense. I am not a self because I perceive a self. I am constant, everlasting, eternal, never changing. That's the idea of the soul, isn't it? And that's where the idea of the soul came from. To allow for this uh, ignorant view of self to maintain itself post a physical life. I must have a self. I must have a soul. Excuse me. Where does the idea of a soul come from? It comes from being enamorated with our own thoughts. We can't give up the idea that at some point my thoughts are simply going to stop. So what can I do? How can I create something that's going to keep my thinking, my self-referential views going? Ah, I have a self. It's everlasting. It's protected by something bigger and greater than me. God, divas, some spiritual um, system that's designed to keep everything going forever and ever and ever. Ha What are the three marks of existence? Impermanence and not self-characteristic and resulting suffering from misunderstanding impermanence. And what's the first thing that human beings did as a species? We looked up and said, I'm not down here, I'm up there. I'm not this guy that can get eaten by saber-toothed tigers so easily. I'm much more than this, and I live forever, no matter. If the tiger gets me today, it doesn't matter. My life has meaning because it's not this life, it's that life. You didn't even make it to the tiger getting you. The Buddhists cause all of that way of thinking, this self-referential way of living in the world, of establishing ourselves and ignorance leading to fermentations as this is a thicket of views that bind ones that binds one to endless confusion, delusion, and suffering. It binds one to endless dukkha. It's a thicket of views. The Buddha also used that to describe the modern um, religions that were around at his time. A thicket of views. Again, describing them in a way that once you have acquired that view, you're stuck in a thicket. It's difficult to, to extricate yourself from that. One who is well instructed in the Dhamma, though, who has developed the Eightfold Path, who has high regard for the Dhamma and those with integrity in regards to the Dhamma, discerns what ideas are skillful to be mindful of and what are to be cultivated and what, idea, what ideas are unskillful, <clears throat> unskillful to be mindful of and are to be abandoned. This one remains mindful of skillful qualities and remain, remains free of unskillful qualities. Having developed a refined mindfulness framed by the Eightfold Path, they remain mindful of the Four Noble Truths. This is stress, meaning in this moment, this is stress arising. And how do we do it? When we find it, we're caught up in our own eye-making and wanting 
this moment to be different or ourselves in this moment to be different, we recognize, as the Buddha told Bahia, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. This is stress. Then recognizing this is the origination of stress. What is the origination of stress? Ignorance of Four Noble Truths manifesting as I-making in this moment. This is the cessation of stress that points to the experience of developing the Eightfold Path and then knowing that the Eightfold Path is the path for developing the cessation of stress or Dukkha. With this refined mindfulness, again, this is the, the only time the Buddha, not the only time he made this statement, but the only reference he made towards the path was in this way. In other words, he didn't, there weren't other paths that the Buddha would reference. If you want to go this way, if you want to just meditate, you can do it this way. If you want to pray your way to salvation, go ahead and pray. If you want to visualize, think of Bhagavad forever and ever and ever. He never said any of that. The only path he ever taught was this way. The Eightfold Path is the path for developing the cessation of stress. I spent probably 20 years in Buddhism and I never, ever heard that. I heard occasional references to Four Noble Truths, never explained to me, and I heard occasional references to the Eightfold Path. No one, and I studied with some of the most, the foremost modern Buddhist teachers, not one ever said that the Eightfold Path is the path that you practice. Not one. That's fine, but it didn't work for me. It was only when I realized what the Buddha taught and started teaching the Eightfold Path that something actually made sense and made a difference in my life. With this refined mindfulness, the fermentations of identity view or self-referential eye-making, confusion and grasping after and clinging to unskillful precepts and rituals, these are fermentations that are directly abandoned by right understanding. A lot of the practice that I was involved in placed almost 100% emphasis on rites and rituals and the way we were holding ourselves. Even, um, I won't identify the center because it will sound like I'm knocking it or I'm not. This is just what they did. But there was much more emphasis put on the form of your sitting than even the practice itself, even whatever what the method was. That you had to be sitting appropriately. And there was a guy that walked, his stick was called, he used to have one hanging up there, Kayasaka. And if you weren't sitting correctly, the, 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 the meditation master would tap you on the shoulder, you would look up, and you would nod your head. That was giving him the approval to whack you with the stick to knock you back into the right position. And all of that, it sounds, now when I say it, it sounds almost silly because I was doing it, but I believe that's what I needed to do in order to develop Buddhism. Of course, the posture has nothing to do with awakening. In fact, thinking about my posture is only going to distract me from just sitting comfortably and, and engaging in jhana practice, which is what the Buddha taught. He never taught anything like that about proper posture or bowing or rituals, but he constantly said, recognize and abandon any rites and rituals. They're not Dhamma practice. He said these are fermentations that are directly abandoned by right understanding. And then he says there are fermentations that are to be abandoned by restraint. And you talk about that all the time. The Dhamma is practiced through wise restraint in this moment. That's where the Dhamma is practiced. With, a refined, with refined mindfulness developed through the framework of the Eightfold Path, this one remains restrained and not distracted by contact with the eyes, the nose, the tongue, the ear or the body, or the intellect. The fermentations that would arise in those unrestrained at the sixth sense base do not arise in one who has developed restraint. Three, there are fer fermentations that are to be abandoned by proper use of what is necessary without creating an identity view. This one uses a robe solely for protection and modesty. So again, the Buddhist is he's really making a comment on um, much of the elaboration or the embellishments made since the Buddha's passing, meaning I can put on the robes of a mendicant, of a, of a monk or a nun, 
that doesn't make me, I mean, there's, there's, there's other sutras where the Buddha says just by putting on the robes does, does not make one a, a disciple. But yet people still do that today. And, and that's a lot of the vow taking is to get the robes so you can look like you're doing this. And again, I'm not putting that down. That's enough for some people to, to, to join something that they feel they're a part of. They get some comfort out of it. It gives them direction in life. That's fine. But it's not Dhamma practice. Just putting on the robes aren't it. Just shaving your head isn't it. This one uses robes solely for protection and modesty, just for practical ways. This one uses food not for entertainment or for intoxication or for growing large or for beautification, but simply for the survival and continu con continuation of the body so that the Eightfold Path can be fully developed. So again, I take good care of myself. Why? Not so I'm beautiful to you. I know I am. But so that I'm healthy enough to develop the Dhamma. And that really is why we, how we should look at our own nourishment. And again, I'm not saying it's, it's that we, we should be wary of enjoying a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Whatever you're doing, you should enjoy yourself in the moment. But be mindfully aware of what it means to you. This one uses using lodging, lodging solely for protection and the enjoyment of seclusion rather than having to have the biggest house on the block. This one uses medicine for the purpose of curing sickness and to be, be free of pain and disease. The fermentations of unskillful using, meaning create, creating identity from what is being used, are abandoned by skillful using. This, to me, is another very profound statement by the Buddha. Now, remember that during the Buddha's time, asceticism was... was the most revered form of spiritual practice. And asceticism is still the most revered form of modern Buddhism. And it's characterized in sometimes hidden ways, such as a forced silent retreat, one, three, seven, ten day retreats, 30, you know, 90 day retreats that are forced silence. That's a form of asceticism. asceticism. And that's what the Buddha is referring to. That's, a, that's an unskillful fermentation. Uh, because we're substituting... <clears throat> That form of asceticism, the withdrawal of one of my senses as the cause of the problem and that that can help liberate me. And so, again, the reason why we don't, we never have run a silent retreat is because there's no opportunity to listen <coughs> and interact with the Dhamma. What we do practice is right speech. And right speech informs noble silence, which is what most people call forced silence. There's no such thing as uh, noble silence within forced silence. There's only noble silence when it's informed by right speech, meaning knowing when to hold my tongue, which, unfortunately for me, I haven't learned entirely yet. Four, there are fermentations that are to be abandoned by tolerating. I love this. One who tolerates, who abandons reaction to worldly causes and conditions such as cool or heat or wind, or harsh words, or unpleasant sensations, or nagging insects, or nagging politicians, or nagging viruses, will not give rise to fermentations and remain free of fermentations by tolerating what is occurring. Tolerating means not taking something personal or anybody else. That's tolerating. Tolerating is not first judging yourself as being above this, meaning some magnanimous view of yourself, I'm above all this. Tolerating is not taking something personal. There are fermentations that are to be abandoned by avoiding. One who mindfully avoids sitting in uns unsuitable seats, prone to distraction or eye-making. This one avoids sitting... lost my space. This one avoids sitting with animals or sitting in brambles or sitting in a cesspool or other unsuitable habitats. Again, the Buddha is talking to about ascetic practices during his time, but also our time. There were people that would subject themselves uh, sitting on a bed of nails. That was common during the Buddha's time, and it's still common in some practices. Walking on glass had a great resurgence in, in my spiritual search. Uh, in the late 90s and, and early 2000s uh, as some kind of 
advanced mind control that if you could do walk across glass or walk across hot coals. Um, these are the kind of nonsensical things that the Buddha is talking about. Anything that we can see as an achievement that we're not developing within ourselves and not letting, not recognizing and abandon eye making is only going to contribute to further fermentations. This one avoids association with unskillful friends. This one avoids fermentations by avoiding what is skillful to avoid. Again, it's an important point. The Buddha talks about, in many, many suttas, the importance of wise associations. And it doesn't mean we, shouldn't, we should only associate with people that are practicing the Dhamma. But it does mean, that, it does mean we should be cautious and, and practice wise restraint with who and what we associate our Dhamma practice with that it must be kept pure. Um, next Tuesday, I'm going to give a talk on the Sambodhi Sutta, uh, the, the Sutta on a Handful of Leaves. It speaks to this uh, as a lead-in to our Truth and Happiness Dhamma study. There are fermentations that are to be abandoned by, by destroying arisen thoughts of ill will or cruelty, meaning recognize, when am I reacting in a, in a, well, in a way that is hurtful towards others or towards, to, towards myself? What do I do with it? Well, the first thing I do is not judge myself, the Buddha teaches us. Don't judge myself harshly because I'm just going to keep recreating that situation through that judgment. What do I do when, I'm, when I recognize I'm acting in an inappropriate way? I abandon it, period. I don't analyze it. I don't pray on it. I don't ask for forgiveness from some unknown source. I simply recognize the poor behavior. I own that poor behavior and I abandon it. This one abandons hurtful thoughts, words, and deeds and eliminates them from their existence. There's other places where the Buddha said, I would not ask you to do these things if they were not possible to do. The Buddha wouldn't be asking us to do this if it wasn't possible to do it. In fact, at a certain point, it becomes the easiest thing or the way, the way to live with ease in our lives, to recognize these things that are vexations or fermentations, recognize them and abandon them. Eliminate them from their existence. Seven, there are fermentations that are to be abandoned by developing the refined mindfulness of the Eightfold Path. With a refined mindfulness developed through the Eightfold Path, they remain mindful of awakened, awakening, de awakening dependent on seclusion, on dispassion, on cessation, on release from clinging to wrong views. They develop an understanding of the qualities of persistence, inspiration, serenity, concentration, and equanimity are factors of awakening. Having, de having developed this understanding through the Eightfold Path, the fermentations are abandoned. When a Dhamma practitioner has abandoned the fermentations through understanding, restraint, proper using, through tolerating, through avoiding, through destroying and developing, this one has severed all craving and clinging and has ended all fetters through right understanding of conceit of eye-making. This one has ended all confusion, delusion, and all unsatisfactory experiences. He closes that sutta with reminding us again that the ending of the fermentation is through the Eightfold Path. That's all. Thank you for listening. So, Again, just to put the conclusion on karma rebirth and intentional becoming, the ending of karma, meaning the, the, uh, the internal momentum that we create another moment rooted in ignorance, is distinguished through the Eightfold Path and through wise restraint in this moment, we recognize I am either becoming further ignorant because now I have the framework to recognize that, as the sutta and many others teach us, or I am becoming awakened, and I know precisely how to do it. It's not, men, it's, not, it's not based on faith or belief, or any teacher or any god or diva, or any ritual. It's based solely on my own application and integration of an Eightfold Path. So let's go around the room. Um, Ram, how are you? We'll start with Ram. So I can see who I'm talking to. How are you, Ram? Good morning. I'm good. Sitting on the porch. Um, yeah, this is a, a, 
a good conclusion for for the series. Um, Buddha clearly lays out all the different forms of becoming and lays out how how to deal with them in, in different yeah. ways. Um, so thank you for bringing the whole issue of becoming um, to more clarity. Well, thank you, Ram. I should say that this this series really was inspired by a talk that Ram and I had uh, a couple of weeks before we began this uh, and just put it together to end the year on. But So did you get more clarity on the meaning of becoming through this series, Ram? Yes, I did. Um, <clears throat> and I, I, for me, the whole series... Um, I looked at it from the perspective of becoming as the the tenth step in the dependent origination, mm. um, and because that's where my my confusion was, it wasn't so much that the uh, the, the the full force of the Dharma is in every days every moments. Um, choice between becoming more ignorant or becoming awakened uh, for me the the uh, that that's always been clear to me um, but I wanted to get more clarity on, on where <clears throat> that uh, that tenth step of um, becoming in dependent origination comes in, and to to bring that to more clarity in my mind. And, and I have gotten uh, a little further into that. I think I still have some more work to do. And after I've gotten that together, I'm, I'm going to tackle uh, number 11, birth. Well, you, uh, yeah, they, 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 it's great insight. And you could also say that becoming begins with the first uh, factor of dependent origination as well. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's, that's, what, that's what sets all of that uh, in, in motion. So. Thank you, Rob. Good morning, Brian. Morning, John. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Um, good. Yeah, the, the word fermentation literally means conversion. So you're, you're going from one state to another state. Yeah. And it, it just, for me, it was, you, you could almost replace that with becoming throughout that suda in some context. And it, it just, you're, you know, these things lead to a conversion to something unskillful or they can lead to something skillful they can lead to more ignorance or they can lead to awakening and then he lays out just very pragmatically what what do all those skillful or unskillful things look like yeah it, it just yeah I, I agree it was a great capstone to this uh little mini structured study so thank you yeah thank you brian uh alex how are you hi john happy, happy new year happy merry christmas yeah, happy new year, everybody. Um, yeah, I'm good, thanks. Uh, just trying to um, absorb it all. Really, it's it's a it was a long one, and I'm uh, yeah, just trying to bring it all together in my mind. So I think I'll take a noble silence. I don't really, I don't think I'm going to articulate anything clear. Well, <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm, I look forward to chatting to you later, John. I, I think I'll have more time then. Yeah, good. We'll we'll, we'll talk later. Um, a, a little time, a little afternoon. I'm going to meet with with Tom a little earlier. So, uh, just send me a, a email or a text. Uh, you know, a good time for you after twelve o'clock. Sure. Good morning, Mateo, or good afternoon, Mateo. Hi, everybody, and uh, happy another year. Yeah. <laughs> we made it. Uh, yeah, we made it. We survived. And I don't know, I was thinking uh, a personal example that I'm ashamed of myself. It happens like more than 20 years ago. And uh, when, you, when, you, when you tell your story about you have to sit in this retreat uh, and the master beat you with, uh, with the stick, you know, that you have to stay. So because I have, a, I, have, I have pretty much the same experience and uh, what I call probably confusing thinking. That's what happened to me more than 20 years ago. I just beat back the master. Did and you? then we, we 
we end up in a very crazy fight with the bus. <laughs> I thought you were kidding when you said you... <laughs>
Very well done. Happy New Year to everyone. Happy New Year to you and all um, the roaches. Thank you. This is um, this is a great teaching. It's to me. It's it's so practical. It it shows how to look at the Dharma and what things to avoid and what things to embrace. And it's kind of really a perfect complement to the Satipatthana Sutta because it just yeah. it just enriches that or it 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 deepens those. Um, what we're looking for to follow the path. Good insight. So this is, um, it's kind of a really auspicious day, mainly because I get to spend the day with our Sangha. This is also the first day of my retirement. Hey, congratulations. (laughs) That's outstanding. I saw my, I saw my last patients, I think yesterday. Wow. It's like we're running back to it. (laughs) Uh, Hold tough. I'm hoping, I'm, I'm very, um, just, uh, I'm very joyful that I had this path and that I've been sticking with this for this, such a number of years with you, John, that yeah. I think it's going to help shape my retirement uh, and I hope to you know, continue and deepen it. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Congratulations. I, you know, um, you're reaping the benefits of your right effort. I still remember the, the first night you walked into our, uh, I think it was the Wednesday night class, wasn't it then? And then Thursday yeah. night. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we had a, a good number of classes. It was just me and you. But we kept doing it. Yes. That's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Hello, Jeff. Good to see you. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year, Jeff. Um, yeah, well, it, my, my recent experience has uh, reaffirmed my uh, my uh, my joy in this in Dhamma because, uh, it, as you might know, I was in the hospital for a while, and it was an experience. It wasn't necessarily, it, of course, it wasn't good, but it wasn't bad either. I yeah. could just actually experience it for what it was. And felt really fortunate because there was a building full of people who weren't having a good time. And it was a remarkable contrast. It was just, um, it was interesting. So, but I have a question and it's not necessarily so insightful, but I'm curious, John, it, it, it seems as though that, um, that quest for some kind of soul or eternal, life seems to be universal do you find that to be true with the people that you come in contact with that yeah i i i've met very few people that even if they weren't religious like again this is not i don't know this about everybody i've ever met obviously but i i've known people that even that weren't very religious but still had the notion of a soul or or something that that needed to be um, uh, served or maintained post-human life, and it's always a distraction, isn't it? You know. So yeah, it, it's a. It seems to be the though the the common human malady, and which also ties into the uh, the the uh, what I refer to often as ongoing self-loathing. I wouldn't I wouldn't fall into the need um, to maintain continuity past physical life if I didn't need to be saved, if I thought there was something lacking here. And it's really what causes us to miss our human... Because we devalue this moment in favor of a further moment, we don't appreciate this moment. That that would be true about, you know, a, a, a beautiful diamond. If you didn't realize what you had in your hand, you know, you'd just you'd, you'd toss it in the gutter. We do the same thing with our own lives because we devalue them in favor of what we think is going to be better. Uh, this this is it's not a negative thing to say this is it this is as good as it gets right here and right now but mm-hmm. that goodness is everything as long as we can be here and be present for it so really again a great and insightful question Jeff I'm, and I'm glad you're on the mend yeah thanks guys good yeah. to be with you again we'll see you again soon hello Tom hi Hi John, uh, happy New Year to everyone. Um, yeah, it's. I, I think at this time of year when um, 
there's so many you just have to go on youtube or 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 you know look online or read newspapers there's so much advice on how to have a, a better uh 2022 right or how to become mm-hmm. something new in 2022 and um i just find these seven sort of ways or um as the most useful um path which any of us could follow yeah. um and um so yeah so so first of all just um yeah just to to echo i guess kevin's comments you know thank you for um the everything that kevin has learned is going to shape his his retirement and i i think i'm talking for for probably most of us or all of us um here in this sangha that, that these teachings have the potential to really shape our year as well yeah. whatever stage of life we're in so um and and and, and i think you just see so much so much clarity here in those seven seven ways if we can if we can just apply right effort um the results are are guaranteed they're not immediate and it's not going to be easy it's not a um yeah. it won't always be smooth or plain sailing but but there are i think i mean at least i talk from personal experience that i i do believe that those results are guaranteed so um in that sense i think that teachings are incredibly timely um and um uh, yeah and, and of course thank you for for sharing them um i i just had a, a very um quick question which was um, the difference between wise restraint which was the second way and um avoiding which i think was the fifth one um if you could just help sort of clarify that to me what's what's the, they seem quite similar those two and just just to understand what um, how they are applied uh, differently, that, that would be great. Well, you're, you're wise to see them almost as identical, but wise restraint can be seen as more immediate where avoidance can be. Um, uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't spend any, I used to spend a great deal of time hanging out in, in bars. I don't do that anymore. I, I avoid them because of what they are. Um, you could say that the decision to not go to the local tavern tonight is wise restraint, but it really is more of avoiding uh, situations and scenarios that, that just no longer um, are skillful for me to be in. I'm not just talking about because I'm a recovered alcoholic. Uh, it could be any situation. Uh, it could be going to, um, I, I mean, just pick one, you know, uh, uh, hanging out with people that are, that are doing nothing but arguing politics, you know, that why would I want to do that? So uh, you could say it's an aspect of wise restraint to not get involved in it, but really that that would fall under the broader label of avoidance. And another good example would be, um, uh, it took me a while to stop going uh, and wanting to spend time with some of the friends that I've made in different disciplines. And so even even after I was firmly committed in practicing what the Buddha taught, I would occasionally go to this place or that place. Um, and I found that um, uh, distressing to the point because I, it was just like it was a waste of my time. And I also felt that by just by my presence there, I was giving tacit approval to what was being presented. And I felt at that time that it was hurtful. So I avoided going to um, this monastery, that center, and et cetera, et cetera, just because of that reason. So I think that's what the Buddha's talking about. And, and there were, <coughs> excuse me. It's also avoidance in practical ways, like not meditating in cesspools, just to use the example. But it is, in that general way, making skillful decisions about where I'm going to put myself in. You know, how am I going to live my life? And that's my choice. Nobody else can make that choice or should make that choice for me. So thank you, Tom. Brett. Good to be here. Thanks for the teaching. Good um, to see you. Yeah, definitely through the uh, through this teaching, a better idea of uh, what becoming is. Um, and uh, I don't have much to say. Taking it all in. Um, you always say something. How can you be here? How can you be in California when you're? I don't know what that saying is that you. Yeah. 
it is. If if you want to go to California, but you believe in New York, you can't get there. Yeah. So the teaching made me think of that a little bit. Yeah. Kind of made that helpful. Yeah, you have to know where you are. You have to put yourself in your place. That wasn't exactly it. If you if you're if you want to get to California, but you believe you're in New York and you're in Chicago, you can't get there. You got to know where you are. You got to know where you're. But that's where, and you mentioned it earlier. That's where jhana meditation begins and ends, isn't it? Yeah. Because no matter how scattered and, or ignorant or distracted we are, engaging in the, that aspect of the Eightfold Path immediately puts our mind in our body in the form where it can start addressing our fermentations. It's just that way, and it works wonderfully well, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Thanks. Glad you're here. You too. Erin. Hi. Thank you. I remember your name. You did it. Um, yes. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's a new year. It, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, please don't cling to that, because okay. <laughs> impermanence may intervene. That's fine. Um, thank you for the teaching. Uh, it's very, it was very relevant to uh, my personal and professional life these past few weeks. So it's 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 good to have the validation and to hear this. And yeah, um, even though I'm not so familiar with. I'm not so engaged with all of this yet. It, it makes so much sense to me. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you, and and you will. It's, it really is a matter of doing just what you're doing. Is just engaging with it, integrating it more and more. Um, and I would say doing it that way, in a, in a gentle way, um, seems to bear more fruit than than say just trying to get it all at once. Because there's a lot to learn, but it's also all of the teachings are very <clears throat> gently integrated. You know, if they're going to be. So, yeah. I'm glad you're here. Thanks. Nina, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I like that phrase, gentle integration. I feel like I've um, observed that over the past few months. Um, but still observing, so I'm going to take noble silence. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. Dustin, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, thank you, John. Um, I'm also going to take noble silence. Glad you're here. Hello, Mary. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. And uh, congratulations, Kevin. That's exciting. New chapter. Um, Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, I think, uh, you know, the Dhamma meets you where you are. And each of us is in a different place as we navigate or migrate from 21 to 22 and what our experiences have been and what we have ahead of us. And so um, the concise... um, clarity of the teaching um, meets us where we are, you know, to help us stay on the path. And it's the repetitive nature of, um, you know, come back to jhana and the rigor of your practice to, um, uh, to guide you. So it's very useful and very nice to be here. So thank you. Thank you, Mary. David. I'm good today. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. So, uh, well, that concludes our um, sixth class study of karma rebirth and intentional uh, becoming. Uh, we're going to start the Truth of Happiness uh, Dhamma study. We do that every year. We've been doing that every year for about eight, nine, or ten years. Um, and that's based on my book. The book's available uh, through Amazon, it's also available here, but the entire text is also on the webpage. Um, and that's linked in the email that you'll be getting on Sunday. Uh, next Tuesday, I'll be teaching, again, I think I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the Simsapa Sutta, a handful of leaves. It's just a good lead-in um, that teaches the importance of maintaining um, a pure Dhamma as the Buddha taught and not get caught up in all the other things like the Buddha talked about here. Where do I come from? Uh, you know, all, all those um, speculative questions that are seeking to establish me outside of where I am right here and right now, which is where the, where the Dhamma is practiced. So, uh, thank you all. We'll finish with... Um, there was something else I wanted to say. Uh, the, uh, the link for the, uh, our Sangha dinner on January 13th and our upcoming midwinter <laughs> retreat that's going to be both here in person and online on February 3rd or 4th, something like that. Uh, I, please reserve your space just so I have a head count for the restaurant. Um, and also, there's a limit to how many people we can fit uh, here in Frenchtown. I don't think we'll reach it, but I just want to make sure of that. So, uh, 
Please reserve your spot as soon as you can. And we'll finish with Meta, as we always do. All right, and Tom, I'll see you um, uh, about 11 o'clock through in our Zoom room. Where are you? Yeah, thanks, John. Sounds good. Great. And Alex, we can do that. You know, we can meet right after that. Just let me know what works for you. All right. Okay. We'll finish with Meta. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Happy New Year. Thank you, John. Peace. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. See you all soon. Happy New Year and stay healthy, everybody. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.